0: Welcome to episode 166 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent on a mission to show the public who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my books, my blog, and my podcast case reviews with former colleagues. Today, we get to speak to retired agent Cecil Moses, who served in the FBI for 42 years. He worked as a clerical employee and then an investigative specialist for 12 years before receiving an appointment to be a special agent, where he developed an expertise in criminal and civil rights matters. In this episode, Cecil Moses reviews the Greensboro Massacre, where in November of 1979, during a protest rally, a shootout occurred that left five members of the Communist Workers Party, CWP, dead, and seven members seriously injured, along with two injured Ku Klux Klansmen and American Nazis. At the time of this incident, Cecil Moses was the assistant special agent in charge, ASAC, of the Charlotte Division of the FBI in North Carolina. He managed the FBI investigation and testified during the subsequent state, federal, and civil trials. During his agent career, Cecil Moses worked in the Cleveland, Omaha, Jackson, and Memphis Divisions, was assigned to the Civil Rights Section of the Criminal Division and the Office of Planning and Evaluation at FBI headquarters. And he served as the Special Agent in Charge of the Birmingham Division. He ended his bureau career as a member of the Senior Executive Service in the FBI Laboratory. Currently, Cecil operates his farm and business with his son, a recently retired FBI agent. To get a full understanding of the historical significance of this episode, just remember, before Charlottesville, there was Greensboro. Charlottesville, of course, occurred in August of 2017, and the Greensboro massacre occurred 40 years ago, this November. During the interview, we also discuss COINTELPRO, the FBI's covert and, at times, illegal counterintelligence program that operated between 1956 and 1971. And we talk about some of the lessons learned from overly restricted Attorney General guidelines on domestic terrorism. But before we get to that interview, I want to recognize that this is National Police Week, and I want to give honor to agents and officers who have lost their lives and have paid the ultimate sacrifice. I also want to welcome new listeners who discovered FBI Retired Case File Review from my recent interview on Gully TV. Welcome. And also listeners who found me through the BBC article on Anna Sorokin. I want to admit to everyone that I'm getting super nervous, kind of freaking out a little bit because I still haven't received authorization from FBI headquarters pre-publication unit on the release of my new book, FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives, which I was hoping to get out at the end of June. So I have my fingers crossed that everything's going to line up and I'll be able to schedule that publication date. I wrote the book especially for listeners who read, write, and watch FBI crime dramas, And of course, for those who have always dreamed of joining the FBI. I am so excited about myths and misconceptions. In each chapter, I discuss one of my top 20 cliches and misconceptions about the FBI and provide a reality check while breaking down the facts. Throughout the book, I use quotes and snippets from some of the retired agents about how the real FBI works. I also review popular films and fiction featuring FBI agent characters. While you're waiting for the book to be published, why not join my reader team and get the FBI reality checklist to discover the top 20 FBI myths and misconceptions. You can join my reader team at jerrywilliams.com, or if you're listening on a podcast app that supports links, you can join in the description of this episode. Thank you. Now here's the show. I am excited to introduce my guest, Cecil Moses. Hi, Cecil. How are you today? Hello, Jerry. Good to be with you. We've gotten to know each other a little bit because you are the administrator of the private Facebook group for FBI employees. And that's fantastic that you started that. It's a a nice way for the FBI family all over the country to get together and, and keep up to date on, on what's happening both in the Bureau and with uh, our retired employees. So thank you for starting that group.
1: Thank you. I I, I started out with about 50 uh, uh, former agents. And then someone asked if we could include the support personnel. And I said, absolutely. Then someone wanted to know if, if current Bureau people, and I said, by all means. So it, it's grown to about, I guess, close to 4,000 members now. So I never dreamed that it would you know, develop the way it has. But I'm glad too, because it does keep us all together.
0: We are here today to talk about a case that I'm sure I knew about when it happened. But, you know, like so many things in, in history, not only do we occasionally forget it, but then we learn that it repeats itself. And this Greensboro massacre is an example of that. So where would you like to start?
1: Well, I totally agree with your comments about that, about how it's deja vu. In fact, you know, you had the incident a year or so ago, whenever, I don't know, a year and a half ago. And and it was almost, it brought back a lot of memories to me because some of the same type players were involved. You know, the Klan, the uh, the Nazi party types, uh, hate groups. But in this situation, in uh, November the 3rd, 1979, it all happened on live TV, local television in Greensboro, North Carolina, were we covering a demonstration by the Communist Workers' Party. Uh, they were there to march, uh, demonstrate against the Klan, the Nazis. I had just arrived in North Carolina in early October. I had just gotten my promotion from Memphis over to Charlotte as ASAC. My SAC had taken leave. He was up in East Tennessee someplace in the woods uh, with no beepers and cell phones in those days, so couldn't reach him. I'm home doing my uh, my laundry, uh, living in temporary quarters, you know, washing my clothes, and uh, I get a call from Bud Mullet. If you know Bud or remember, he had quite a strong personality, and he said, "What the hell is going on in Greensboro?" And I said, "I don't have a clue." He said, "Well, you better find out." Apparently, the president had called uh, direct, uh, the director Webster, and they were seeing this on live TV. Well, I hadn't, I didn't have a TV on, so. He said, well, you better get up there immediately and find out what's going on and blah, blah, blah. So I jump in my old FBI car and I go racing off to Greensboro. It turned out all 12 or 10 or 12 agents that were signed to the RA were out at a golf tournament. So I had a hard time reaching someone, but we finally were able to get a hold of an agent, had them meet me, uh, had the SRA, SSRA, and a couple of his people meet me at the police department and, you know, was briefed. And then I was able to call back and brief Bud, uh, who briefed the director, who briefed the president.
0: Why don't we take some time and you just explain what happened?
1: Yeah. Okay. So it was on November the third. By the way, uh, was a um, was a day before or uh, the same day that the uh, the Iranians took over our embassy. So those two events, the na- you know major events, were taking place at the same time, which probably took us off the front page a little bit. But in any event. On a sunny afternoon, November the 3rd, 1979, Communist Workers Party were marching in, in large numbers.
0: I understand they were there because North Carolina has a lot of textile mills and they wanted to organize the workers. That's correct. And by the
1: way, many of the members were professors from uh, Duke University, some from up in the U- University of Maryland. But they'd all come in there uh, from uh, the D.C. area, North Carolina, a large uh, crowd of uh, uh, Communist Workers' Party members. These people were self, you know, readily admitted that they were labor organizers and and active members of the Communist Party. It was, a, it was sort of a branch of the Communist Party USA. You know, again, I was new to the area, so I didn't know the territory, but I found out later there had been a, an a earlier demonstration back, I think, in June or July of that year at another location in North Carolina where there had been a, another march by. Uh, and there was another one of those textile areas that the uh, communist workers and labor organizer types had had demonstrated. And so there was some bad blood already going on between the Klan and the uh, Communist Workers Party. And so later, the uh, CWP announced that they were going to do this anti-Klan march uh, in Greensboro, and it was in the um, they call it Morningside area of uh, Greensboro. I guess it would be you know the uh, low-income side of town that they were going to you know do their marching. And, and they were getting extensive media coverage, too, uh, uh, I would add, uh, including uh, newspaper and, and TV. And so the Klan, uh, we, the FBI, let me digress and mention that became a major part of this. You have to remember, uh, Jerry, that in the 70s, there was a lot of criticism of the FBI for monitoring uh, domestic groups like the Klan, the Black Panthers, etc., and the Communist Party. In fact, Church uh, Senator Church uh, from uh, Iowa, uh, Idaho held hearings, uh, and, and there was a lot of, of uh, negative press about the FBI. And as a result of all those hearings, and including one of the big critics was Senator Morgan from North Carolina. Uh, so I'll give you that as a way of backdrop. And so in the, in the Civiletti, who was the attorney general, came out with the new guidelines in, I think, 1976, under those guidelines, we had to close nearly all of our uh, informants in the, in, that had been involved in, with the Klan, the Nazis, the uh, Black Panthers, and the Communist Party, because they, these were domestic groups, and these guidelines says the, the FBI uh, had no business uh, uh, tracking these folks or being involved in, in infiltrating those groups. So when this happened, the FBI was in the dark. We weren't involved that day. We had, our agents were out there at a the golf, you know, they weren't there covering this thing because we weren't we weren't involved. We weren't investigating the uh, the Communist Party or the Ku Klux Klan, and we we lost our informants. We had an old informant named Eddie Dawson who had been a um, a longtime informant of an agent there in Greensboro, and I think Dawson may kept trying to call uh, Bogarty was his name, um, but. Bogarty, like, said, look, we're not working these groups anymore. You'll have to call and talk to the police department. And apparently he did. So the police department did have some intel, uh, apparently, that there was going to be a possible, you know, trouble. And so they had a, a contingent of police officers out there at the Morningside area. I don't remember how many, but there apparently was a large contingent. But we weren't, we weren't even there monitoring the thing. So,
0: So this source had tried to contact the FBI and I understand why uh, he was told to contact the police department, but he contacted the police department indicating that he knew the clan was planning something.
1: Yeah. They were going to show up and, and maybe things would, would get out of hand. And so then you also had an ATF agent that had infiltrated undercover. I believe the Nazi group, I can't remember if it was the Nazi or the clan up name was name was uh, uh Buckovich, and this agent ATF agent Buckovich uh, had had um, had been inside the group, so he also knew that the Klan was going to show up in, in in large numbers. I don't remember all the the size of that uh, demonstration, Jerry. I, I just know it was dozens and dozens of marchers, and I don't really remember how many Klansmen and Nazis there were, but I think again probably more than a couple dozen. Because at one point, about 11 of them were involved in this uh, later, the lawsuit that resulted out of all of this. And so, but Len Borgaty had, had been the old expert on the Klan. But again, we were, we were out of the business. So, you know, then all of a sudden, after all of this went down that day, and this was really nasty, and the first critic that came out of yelling and, and, and criticizing the FBI was Senator Morgan from North Carolina. As I understand it, his grandfather may have been a member of the Klan back in his day. In any event, he was an extreme critic of the Bureau uh, for monitoring domestic groups back when the church hearings were taking place. Now he comes out and was critical as why was the FBI. Where were they? Why did not we know this was going to happen? Why didn't we uh, take action to prevent that, et cetera? Well, I didn't lose any time to tell the press. Why don't you ask Morgan where he was in 1976? when he was shouting about how the FBI should not be monitoring groups like this. So we never heard it from him again, by the way, but that was kind of a, a situation we were in that day. I mean, what happened that day? And again, it was in, in the afternoon, as I recall, it was a beautiful November, uh, sunny day. The Klan people showed up and there was some dispute. The FBI laboratory did an awful lot of work. Apparently one of the communist members, they were frightened because the Klan was jeering and yelling and carrying on. And one of the communist members pulled a shotgun and fired the first shot. And that was that's been in dispute. I know it was in dispute, but uh, as I recall, our lab was able to, through the sound analysis and what have you, determine that that probably was the first shot. That's all. I guess the Klan they they that was their cue boy. They they jumped in their trunk of their car, started pulling out long guns. Pistols, long rifles, et cetera., shotguns, and they opened up when it's all over, five members of the um, of the cWP were killed, and seven seriously wounded, and I believe two clansmen were wounded in this in the shootout. A TV reporter was trying to cover that. he took cover, and you can see he was filming from like underneath a vehicle, so some of this was was right out there in live television. You could see the the blood running down the street. So it was a terrible, terrible situation. That's what happened that day. And as I mentioned uh, already, uh, five uh, people were killed, seven seriously wounded on the part of the Communist Workers Party, and I believe two clansmen also. So that's
0: pretty much what happened. One of the things that I read in the paper that unlike other anti-Klan rallies and, and, and skirmishes between You know, one party in the Klan, this was not a black-white situation. That many, most of the members of the Communist Workers' Parties were white, and most of the people that were killed and injured were also white. So this was not necessarily a racial incident. That's that's correct. Thank you for,
1: for making that point. There were some black members of the CP, particularly, I think, some of the professors over at Duke, but but it was primarily a, a white group the the CWP uh, uh, demonstrators, so it was not it really was not a racial thing. I think of course they claimed later, and we'll get into that uh, in a minute, when in their civil suit. But they claimed uh, you know that, uh, that the police and the FBI and ATF and they all colluded and conspired with the uh, with the Klan to allow uh, the Klan to come in and kill some of the communist uh, members. That became the essence of the uh, civil suit that was later brought. Uh, and I'd like to talk about that somewhere along the way. But
0: um, can, I, can I ask you uh, in, in bring up that topic? You had indicated that the source had contacted the police. And I understand why the FBI wasn't monitoring the situation Uh, This occurred in what I understand was a predominantly African-American community in Greensboro, uh, where this actual march occurred, even though it was between the Communist Party and the Klan and and the Nazis. Were the Greensboro police monitoring? Were were they present during this? They were. In fact, they had, um, I don't remember now, but they had a
1: fairly large contingent of police officers, but they thought that. Somewhere I think the intel indicated this was all gonna if there was a problem it was gonna happen at uh, Morningside. That was a community area there. So they had most of their police officers were stationed in the Morningside area. And as I remember and I'm going on a long memory here, I mean memory from way back, but as I best I recall that the uh confrontation took place before they got to Morningside. They were they were headed to that area and so they the police the, the large contingent of police officers were actually not right at the scene uh, when the shooting took place so it took some minutes to get police over from where they were uh, you know stationed to to come to i think it was right almost downtown where where the uh, where the clash occurred so that became a an, another point in the in the lawsuit that they claimed the police deliberately held back and to you know, because they had an anti-communist, they didn't mention they didn't emphasize race so much. Well, they didn't mention race, but they said you know the anti-attitude toward the communists and and the members that were also of uh, black members of that. So that that was one of their allegations in their civil suit.
0: Now this is going to be fascinating to to hear more about it. I have one more question because I know you're going to move on. I want to come back to. What you were saying about the possibility of a member of the Communist Party firing the first shot. The Klan and the Nazis were heavily armed. I've seen the footage of them going into the trunk of the cars yeah. and taking out the weapons. Were the communist party heavily armed and was that shot at the Nazis or was it shot into the air? Do we do we Well know?
1: they they claimed that one of the they claim one of the Klan members shot a pistol in the air that caused the shooting to break out as best I can recall. No. And to answer your question, I don't think the CWP people were heavily armed. There were a few people with arms, uh, shotguns, I think primarily maybe a few handguns, but they weren't heavily armed. The clan, as you saw in the footage was very heavily armed. They had all type of shoulder weapons and what have you and used them. A key aspect of this case was we had to get the lab involved to do the sound analysis and what have you. I'm pretty sure that the conclusion was that the first shot was fired by uh, one of the CWP members using a shotgun. I think he panicked because they were using clubs or throwing something at him or something like that. As I recall, he wheeled around pointed the gun and then fired the weapon. And of course then the Klan immediately rushed to their cars and started taking out the long guns and that's when the slaughter occurred. That's pretty I'm pretty positive that's the way it went down, uh, Jerry.
0: Yeah, and and you use the word slaughter and of course they've also used the word massacre. And I know one of the articles was so disturbing to read. It was a quote by a clansman and it said that the reason that they were able to do more harm as far as killing members of the Communist Party and uh, injuring them was because the Klansmen were better shots and and veterans and and they just were better at defending themselves and I was just horrified by that you know by that comment.
1: Well, I, I, part of that's correct is correct in the fact that many of those members were former military. They knew about. Claymore mines and how to use shoulder weapons, and again these um, the CWP people, uh, like I mentioned to you, educators and different folks, and and any weapons they had, I think were shotguns and a few handguns, and they they fired shots. I mean they you know there were the you know they did some shooting, but mostly uh, when the when the big blast occurred, they were all running for cover. I think most of the shots that were fired were fired by uh, by Klansmen and Nazi uh, members, and then a few days later, we got information that the um, CWP were going to parade their dead uh, down Main Street in Greensboro to the to the local cemetery where four of the members were going to be buried. Well, that really took on a a whole different situation, and we had intelligence that the Klan were coming in there in large numbers. The uh, Nazi Party people were coming in. We had information that some of the Klan members planned to. Uh, were, some of them were former military. Would plan to come in and drop Claymore mines on the marchers. The city decided what route they could use for safety, and blocked off all the inter, you know, all the intersections. The governor declared a state of an emergency. I think we had about 500 National Guardsmen were called in. The entire Greensboro Police Department, about 175 members, 250 state troopers, all deployed. I had 30 agents, and we had. Try to have one agent at every roadblock at every place. We had people coming in from out of state. This was on a Sunday, November the 11th. And we had people coming, uh, trying to come in to join the the march, or the anti people too. We had both groups. We even had professors coming in from uh, Duke with weapons in their car. State troopers had blocked the roadways coming into Greensboro, so they set up roadblocks and were checking. So we recovered numerous weapons. But this most scary part was thinking that maybe these crazy uh, Klansmen would come in with a helicopter and start dropping these Claymore mines. So it was a it was a really, really frightening day. But as it as it turned out and and I was there, you know, trying to coordinate all of this with the head of the National Guard and and state police, et cetera. My SAC didn't even come up there. Uh, Herb Monaghan. It all went down, though. Fortunately, no one was hurt. There was no one uh, injured during that awful march uh, of of them carrying the caskets of their five dead members. So that that was the end of the first week. So that's how it started. And um, when I called Bud, he said, I said, Bud, what jurisdiction do we have? He said, well, you figure it out. So I had worked in the civil rights section previous to going back to the field. And so I said, well, you know, the Communist Party had a a permit to parade. And the Klan came in and disrupted it. So I guess we'll open a civil rights case. So we opened a you know, a civil rights case. And the next day, I think it was way up into, and that was on a Saturday afternoon. And by Monday, I don't know, midday, I get a call from Lee Caldwell, who was it, uh, the uh, number two guy, I guess, at the time at the Bureau. He said the director was getting a lot of pressure from President Carter. Uh, Carter had instructed that, He sent in 100 agents from outside North Carolina because he didn't trust having North Carolina agents working the case. And so the word to me was that they were going to send Jack Lawn from the inspecting division at the time with 100 agents. And I took great umbrance to that. I said, look, I've only been here maybe a month. I worked civil rights cases. In fact, I was assigned to the civil rights section and Jack Lawn was right next door in the section. He later, as you know, became the uh, administrator of a DEA. In any event, I said, look, I didn't ask for the promotion over here. Number one, we don't need 100 agents coming here, coming in here that don't even know the area. I don't know the area. And I'm, I'm here until the SAC is located. But I surely resent that order. And you know, I'd like that made known to the director. And I did it in rather strong terms. Lee said, well, you want to talk to him? I said, no, I want you to Convey my feelings about it, and if he's not happy with me here, he, I'll be happy to go back to Memphis because that's where my family is anyway. I got a call a few hours later, and they said the director's going to back you, but if you botch this, your career is over. I said we'll handle it, and so when the SAC was finally—I don't remember when he showed up, but when he finally got back to the division, he said, "You just stay up there and run that thing. I'll stay down here and run the office." And but that was a darnest week you can imagine. We had all kinds of intelligence coming in. And by the end of the first week, I think it was on a Sunday, I had an agent fly the initial report, which was somewhere around 12, 11, 1200 pages. Our initial report was sent to Washington. The director told uh, Lee Caldwell, I want to see that report. And Lee said, you do? And he goes, yes, and so they started wheeling it in, and uh, and you know, like shopping carts. Can you imagine? You know, the size of an eleven hundred page report. And he said, "That's the report." And Lee said, "That's the report, Judge." And, and I don't think he'd ever read an FBI report. Uh, probably been, you know, tried a lot of cases. But in any event, he was he was shocked. And Lee said, "I suggest you might just want to read the synopsis, which probably you know, twenty five or thirty pages." I have to digress and mention. There was an agent that had had a lot of trouble up in New York back in the 70s, Horace Beckwith. He'd been he was a supervisor involved in one of the new left groups. He was busted and the director even considered firing him. But uh, they finally agreed to let him stay on and finish his career and let him go to Charlotte, North Carolina. Horace was an incredibly competent agent and great with paper. When I got to Charlotte, he was just basically doing time, setting off in the corner, doing very little. And so one of the best decisions I think I made initially in that case was I I called and I said, I want Horace up here. I knew he could handle paper. And I signed him the case. Horace Beckwith did an absolutely stellar job. And one of the first comments the director made when he picked up the synopsis of the report, he says, this is Horace Beckwith? Isn't that the guy I I was going to fire? And Lee said, yep. Why in the world would Cecil be picking him? He said, because he's very competent. And so it gave new new life, you might say, to, to Horace Beckwith. Did an incredibly good job doing daily summaries, as you can imagine.
0: You had mentioned that the reason that his job was on the line was because of his own activities. Could you explain uh, that? Yeah,
1: involvement with the leftist group in New York City, I think they call it Squad Twenty Seven, some of the uh radical left wing folks Horace's squad were, were dealing with, and um, I think Bernardine Dorn, and, and they accused him of doing some uh, unauthorized um, uh, entrance to some offices. So there was a big, in fact, later, you know, some of the Bureau people were sued. Horace uh, headed up that squad, and uh, or he might have even been higher up than that, I don't remember. But in any event, the director really, really considered firing him. But others pleaded uh, on his behalf. And so he was given a transfer to Charlotte to let him finish out his uh, his time. And that's basically what he was doing. He was just, you might say, sat in, in the corner uh, waiting you know, for retirement. I brought him into this case and, and, and he just did an incredible, I couldn't have done it without him.
0: Well, it's really surprising, you know, somebody who uh, whose job was on the line because the director thought that he may have authorized illegal activity get sent to Charlotte because uh, Charlotte has always been thought of as one of the jewel offices as far as, you know, location and commuting and cost of living. You know, for the Bureau, it's always been a very popular office of preference selection. Oh, absolutely!
1: I, I certainly would would uh, agree with that. I was, I couldn't believe my good fortune when I got promoted directly.
0: Yeah, so Horace wasn't punished very much. Well.
1: <laughs> he- Somebody went to bat, Horace had, had had supporters, I'm, I can assure you, and, and they gave him the choice of an office, and he picked Charlotte. I don't remember why he selected Charlotte, probably for some of the reasons you just mentioned. Hmm. I don't remember if he was from North Carolina, but in any event, I think he went from a grade 15 back to 13, as I recall. His name was on all the reports and, and did a fantastic job. And I remember, Jerry, when I got up there, as I mentioned to you, on the afternoon of November the 3rd, I don't think I got back to Charlotte for about 12 weeks. I had to send someone to my apartment to pick up clothes to bring to me. Uh, it was um, it was probably the, one of the most difficult aspects of my career, for sure, and probably one of the more dangerous, because the Klan were threatening our guys, and we had a confrontation with them out there at a place called Lincoln I think it was North Carolina. I'll never forget it. They had surrounded some of our agents that had gone out to interview. And when I heard that, I, I really, really became angry. I grabbed some members of our SWAT team, and I went out there. And we, I won't go into all the details, but we, we uh, made made sure they understood that they were never to do that again. And we put that right in the report. I, I didn't hide it. I mean, I, I put it right in a 302. Exactly what I did. What I told them that would happen if they ever pull that again. So it was a nasty situation. Did everybody cooperate? Oh, with the
0: Klan, you mean? With everybody. You know, you had... No, no,
1: no. The the CWP people wouldn't cooperate at all. They wouldn't give us a statement. They wouldn't agree to be interviewed. We got no cooperation from the CWP. Some of the Klan members did agree to interview and provided information, but we could not get cooperation from uh, members of the uh, Communist Party.
0: And why was that?
1: I don't know. You know, it's anti-government, I guess, but they just refused to uh, provide interviews. Uh, Even, you know, the the victims, widows, I think all the victims were male. I I believe that was the case. But even uh, their widows wouldn't talk to us. None of the, I don't think we had any real good interviews with any members of the uh, demonstrators. Interesting. But I, I signed teams. I think I pulled agents in from Raleigh and Hickory. Of course, I didn't know the agents, and you know, I'd, I had to rely on Andy Pelzar, who was the S.S.R. there. But um, we sent out, and we worked in teams of two. And uh, you know, I have a evidence team. I have a team assigned to different aspects of the demonstrators. I had teams assigned to interview uh, clan members. I had a team to you know coordinate with the police to get their information, and, and it all came together quite well. As a matter of fact. My career didn't hurt from it because when was all over and done with, I got a nice uh, a letter from the director and a nice incentive award. I mentioned to you earlier that I was told that if I botched it, my career was over. Well, it turned out pretty well in terms of what could have been really, really a bigger disaster on that march of the um, carrying their dead through the street. That had great potential for an absolute bloodbath. Uh, and, and for the fact that for that to end, and we only had 30 agents out there. we try to have an agent, like I said, at every roadblock at every, uh, intersection that was blocked off. Uh, and I forget how long the, the March was. It seems to me it was two or three miles and it was a very tense day. It all ended with no injuries, no guns fired, and everybody was able to, to go home safe. So that's the way it all ended from that standpoint. Of course, then it went on and on. You had these trials.
0: Could you talk more about the actual charges that the FBI investigation was going after at the end of the investigation? Was anybody charged and what were the results of that investigation? And if you could also talk about whatever local charges and the results of those particular trials,
1: yeah, the the state authorities, uh, Greensboro and the state officials, charged uh, six of the Klansmen and Nazis with a murder, and there was a long trial. I think it was the longest murder trial in the history of North Carolina. The jury came back and acquitted all six members that had been charged with murder in connection with those shootings. The state was trying to prove that these were the main shooters, the ones who actually did firing the weapons were those six that they could document, I guess, from film or whatever, and and from inter- interviews that we did. Uh, and we provided our information to the local authorities. Well, given the outcome of that, I think that trial took place at, I believe, at Winston-Salem. The Justice Department debated, I guess, back and forth for the longest time before 1982, if I recall. They brought federal civil rights charges and they charged, I believe, nine members. Uh, Jerry could have been eleven, but I know it was nine for sure with violation of the civil rights uh, uh, provisions. In that, they uh, planned to dem- uh, to disrupt this parade that communist party demonstrators had a legal you know, permit to do it. And again, it was a long, drawn out trial. And they had a prosecutor from DOJ, I believe, that primarily the lead prosecutor in the case. And in that case, uh, the jury came back and acquitted. Those those members, I think it was some of the same members that had been acquitted by the state were included in the federal indictment, plus some additional ones. And they were all acquitted also.
0: So you have what people are calling a massacre where five individuals are killed. And I think there was 10 or 11 people seriously injured, uh,
1: seven, uh, seven seriously injured uh, on the CWP side and I think two on the Klan side. So I think nine people were injured in in addition to the five that were were killed
0: outright. So you have all of this. You have a lot of it covered on video by news crews that were in the area. And at the end, all members were acquitted. Nobody went to jail for, for any of this.
1: Correct. That's correct. I, to this day, I don't I don't understand what was going on in the mind of the juries. Two different juries, one for the state trial, and one for the federal trial. But yeah, that's the way it all ended following that conclusion of that federal trial, the, uh, communist workers party filed a civil suit in April, 1982. And they named, uh, everybody, but the kitchen sink. I mean, they had attorney general, former attorney general, the director, probably three dozen or, or more people, including about two dozen members of the clan that they knew of, I guess, clan members and Nazi members. There were probably several dozen uh, defendants, including myself. And when, when the dust settled and, and, and all most of these people were taken out of the suit, like the director and et cetera, and there was a handful of us left, the chief of police of Greensboro, um, one, maybe some of his uh, top officers, the head of ATF, and, and uh, this uh, agent, uh, Bukovic, who had been undercover in the group. And then about 13 uh, Klansmen Nazis were co-defendants. I remember having to set through a 13-week trial in Winston-Salem as a co-defendant with these uh, Klansmen. And by then, I'd been promoted, long since had been promoted to SAC over in, um, in 1981. I became SAC in Birmingham, and I was having to fly back over there. I might point out one aspect. It, it really was a sore point with me, but the Christic Institute, which is a Catholic order in D.C., heavily funded the uh, civil suit. I was deposed for, I don't know, two days, maybe. And I think I was on the witness stand for two or three days. And they brought a judge in from Richmond because the local judges recused himself. But there was a long, drawn out 13-week trial, $48 million lawsuit. And the only finding the jury came back with, they found Greensboro police were derelict and, and they didn't provide adequate protection to the uh, Communist Party demonstrators and I think they found against them $500,000, which the city voted to indemnify the police chief and his uh, his officers. And the city itself was sued also. Greensboro, the city of Greensboro was also included in the lawsuit. And then and the civil suit itself was was absolutely ridiculous. I mean, they were making charges that we sat down and planned. And heck, I, I had been there one month. I didn't even know we had a CWP chapter. I didn't even know we had a clan at at, uh, Claverns in North Carolina. So like I told you earlier, we'd gotten out of the business of of monitoring or investigating these groups in 1976 under the Attorney General guidelines, which weren't revised until
0: uh, later on under uh, President Reagan. They stayed in effect all those years. Could you tell us a little bit more about the guidelines? What changes had been made in 76 and what the guidelines say now. I, you
1: know, I'm a little rusty on what the current guidelines are because I retired at the end of 1989. I became an agent in 1969, and so I happened to be back at headquarters in the office of planning when the church hearings were taking place in the early to mid 70s. And as a result of of those hearings and and uh, much criticism of the FBI and its involvement in investigating groups like the Communist Workers' Party, like the Communist Party USA, and the Black Panthers, and the Ku Klux Klan. There was much criticism of the Bureau's uh, role in that. And COINTELPRO was an old program that was started in the 60s to disrupt uh, some of those groups. And I I think that caused some of the problem. But in any event, those guidelines were very restrictive. And the way they were drawn, the Bureau had no no, uh, choice but to close out and to close all, any cases we had pinned in there, they were closed, and any informants we had in those groups were closed, and so we were, you know, in the dark, if you will, about what was going on by these groups, and and certainly we we weren't tracking the Klan. We didn't know how active they were. We'd been out of the business for over three years, and that was during the Ford administration,
0: by the way, when those
1: guidelines were put in place.
0: So basically, the guidelines indicate the right for freedom of speech for all of these groups. You know, they can say their hate speech. They can talk about any of these things that would be most offensive to all of us, but they have the right to do so. And, and what the guidelines were saying was that the FBI cannot simply investigate these groups because of what they say and what they stand for.
1: I think that's the gist of it. pretty much is exactly the way it came out and those guidelines stayed in effect right on through till I was uh well I think they changed somewhere in the late eighties uh ten years or so later they were rewritten and we gave the bureau a little more leeway if they had you know credible information indicating the group was about to you know do some harm or whatever even even those guidelines and they're probably still in effect are very restrictive you can only Do a preliminary. And if you can't establish something early on, you have to close it out. So the guidelines were revised, but I, I think they're still much more restrictive than they were prior
0: to 1976. I'll have to see if I can look them up and put a link to those guidelines in this episode's show notes. I would hope that people would see the value of monitoring them if they have shown to be involved in violent or criminal activities in the past. And I definitely think that for both the Ku Klux Klan and the Nazis, that predication for past criminal and violent activities. I think it would
1: be good, Jerry, if you could pull up the link, because I'm sure those guidelines have probably been revisited a number of times and probably have been uh, re- Revised, even after nine one one, I would think those guidelines were probably rewritten again. I have no idea what the current ones are like. Frankly, I'd like to see myself. I'd like to know what the current guidelines look like. Well, I will do that then. That would that would be a real service, I think. I I know from just reading news reports and all that they they do or they are allowed to open cases under certain circumstances and do what they call a, a preliminary investigation. Uh, and if they don't establish some some activity or wrongdoing during that preliminary, they have to close it. There's another Arthur uh, I mentioned to you offline, the name of Aaron, A-R-A-N, Cedrally. Aaron is, lives up in Richmond. He became interested in some of these groups as a result of that incident up in Richmond with the Klan. Uh, um, you know, there was some violence there. And so he started doing research. That file is in the library of the University of North Carolina. And the university has this entire case in their library. And under the Freedom of Information Act, I guess it got most of the records. And Aaron has been down there and spent days and days going over. He even had a copy of my commendation letter when he called me. By the way, you know, Jimmy Carter was never a big fan of the FBI, but he did tell the director that he was so pleased with the way the, the case was handled and the, and the outcome and the way we were able to prevent, you know, all the possible major deal on that that second march that when he got the uh, Iranian thing off of his plate that he was going to call a conference and commend the FBI. Well, as we know that never happened because he was never he was never able to put the Iranian thing uh, to bed on his watch so so we never got any public credit from the from the White House
0: although he did tell the director how pleased he was well i don't know if you realize this but in november this year this will be the 40th anniversary of the greensboro massacre wow i hadn't thought about that yeah because it was in november of 1979 well this was such a timely case review, not only because it's going to be the 40th anniversary, but because we're hearing more and more about, you know, hate crime and the resurgence of white supremacy and white supremacist groups around the country. I just hope that, you know, something like this will not occur again. But as we said at the beginning, sometimes history does repeat itself, Again, this has been fascinating, but this was just one of the many, many cases that you either worked or you supervised during your FBI career. I'd like to take just a short moment, if we could, and ask you when you joined the FBI and, and why you joined the FBI. Well, I, I joined
1: the Bureau right out of high school. I went to a small school in southeastern Kentucky where I grew up. My goal was to be a Kentucky State Trooper. That was, that was right up front and center. of My goal, this FBI agent came to our class just before graduation and made a presentation. He was out recruiting for the IDENT division. Back then they called it Hoover High. You know, there were so many, there's over 6,000 people working in the old IDENT division back in those days in the late fifties. And he made a presentation. We started out in my class, uh, Jerry, was 129, only 53 of us made it all the way to the end. As, that was the kind of dropout rate we had in the hills there in Kentucky. But anyway, uh, he was able to convince me that I should apply to the Bureau. And he said, you can always come back and be a trooper. But, but in the meantime, if you stay at the Bureau, you can go to night school and get a degree and and become an FBI agent someday. In those days, if you're a male employee clerk coming in, the agent in the field could interview you and recommend you. But, but Hoover had this notion that all male clerks had the potential of becoming an agent. And so I had myself, I was a co-valedictorian and my valedictorian was a, was a female. Two thirds of my class applied to go in the bureau and only she and I made the cut. But I had to drive all the way to Louisville to be interviewed by the SAC because you know he had to approve whether or not I could come in to the bureau. So I got my appointment, supposed to have been back at the identity division, but they noticed I had relatives in Cleveland, Ohio, and they had a dire need for male employees to work night shift because the females couldn't work night shift in field offices in those days. And so they sent her a telegram asking if I would agree to an appointment in Cleveland, and that's where I started my career. In the meantime, somewhere along the way, I decided I'll, I'll never get ahead if I don't get that degree, so I went back to school. I graduated on a Thursday, and I got my appointment uh, the next afternoon by teletype to be an agent. Had a week's notice to get to Quantico career took off after that it was a great it was a great ride came in as gs s two and I ended up retiring as a ses four
0: for those who uh, don't know about SES positions, if you could explain. I was assistant agent in charge
1: over in North Carolina when this uh, case we've been talking about took place. And then I was promoted again from Charlotte directly to Birmingham as the SAC, the special agent in charge. And I was there from 81 until uh, 1987. And my luck ran out and I got transferred back to headquarters. And I finished up my last two years as a member of the senior executive service in the FBI uh, crime
0: laboratory. Excellent. I know you've been retired for a number of years now, but what are you doing now? I still have my business. I was a police chief
1: after I left the Bureau. I let them talk me into that here in Madison County, Alabama, fastest growing uh, city in the, in the state and the most affluent city. promised them I'd stay three years and help them start a, you know, build their department. I ended up staying 10. And then finally I was vested. So I now get a pension from the federal government and the state of Alabama, but I started my own consulting business and I'm still active. I have a farm up in Tennessee with my son. My son, Keith, became an agent. In fact, his whole career took place after I retired. I was able to give him my, my badge and he got my old credential number when he became an agent in 1991. And he's recently retired. He and I, a hundred and something head of black Angus cows and about 25, or 30 horses and mules. And I still have my business here in Huntsville. We have some contracts with some corporations, and we do some contracts for State Department and uh, NSA. So still busy, even at at this young age. (laughs) (laughs) I've been trying to outrun old age, uh, Jerry, and uh, sometimes it gains
0: and sometimes uh, I win, you know, depending on which day of the week. One of the agents, retired agents that I spoke with. Matter of fact, I still haven't gotten him on the podcast because he's so busy. We haven't been able to find a time for him to record, but he admitted to me that he was a failure at retirement. So I use that now. Yeah, that's a good (laughs) term. I'll use that too. At the end of every episode, I like to give my guest the last word. So what would you like to say? Well, I've certainly
1: been, uh, I've enjoyed uh, reviewing this old 40-year-old case. I I think you've provided a heck of a service for the FBI because it helps educate the public about the FBI's work. The case we just reviewed, you know, people just don't realize some of the things we have to do to keep the public safe. So I applaud you for doing that. And I'm, I'm proud to have been a part of it.
0: And that's the end of the interview. At jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Cecil Moses, as well as links to numerous newspaper articles and videos about the Greensboro Massacre. There's also a photo from one of the anti-Klan rallies and a photo of the memorial marker. I was able to find the Attorney General's guidelines on domestic security and terrorism investigations, and I've posted it in the episode show notes. I hope you enjoyed the episode and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. If they're not sure how to listen to a podcast, have them read the post on my website, How to Listen to a Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or anywhere you listen to audio. I also want to remind you that I have FBI Retired Case File Review stickers and buttons available on my website. I have packages ready to send out as soon as I get your order. This podcast is where I talk about true crime, but if you also enjoy watching crime dramas and reading crime fiction, then you want to join my reader team. When you do, you'll get a copy of my FBI reading resource, which is a list of all the books about the FBI written by the FBI agents who have been on this podcast. True crime, memoirs, and crime novels. Soon, you'll be able to pick up a copy of my nonfiction book, FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives. Coming soon to all stores where books are sold. It's a 55,000-word expanded version of my popular FBI reality checklist. If you enjoy police procedurals, I hope you also consider picking up copies of the crime novels in my FBI Philadelphia Corruption Squad series, Pay to Play, and Greedy Givers. The crime fiction series features Special Agent Carrie Wheeler, Temptation, Corruption, and Redemption. The books are available as eBooks and paperbacks at Amazon.com, and Pay to Play is also an audiobook. I want to thank you for listening to the very end, and I hope you come back for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.